Do me a favor, open up your Bibles uh, to, to John chapter one. John chapter one. If you're new with us this morning, we've been going through a series called Jesus is the Light. And the plan was, you know, when you plan these sermon series, you, you kind of have an idea in your mind what you're gonna preach on, you kind of plan ahead, and then um, you get to when you have to prep for the actual sermon, and then you're like, oh, this is a lot. So um, we're supposed to be, I'm supposed to preach verses 14 to 18, because we've worked our way through to 13 already, and today I was like, oh yeah, we, we'll do 14 to 18, and then um, I had two choices to make. Like, first choice was, do I preach the 30 minutes that I normally preach, right? Um, or do I preach a full hour? And I decided to go with the full hour because, oh, sorry, sorry, Pastor Todd. Sorry. That was Pastor Todd. If you don't know who Pastor Todd is, he's our care pastor. He cares very much for his time here, apparently. Um, so I decided just to preach the 30 minutes. And if you knew, you know, I'm supposed to preach 30, 35 minutes and I just end up preaching 30 to 35 minutes. So um, we're just going to focus on verse 14. I think that's all that we have time to do. But we'll read to verse 18. Um, uh, Before I do that, let me make some introductory comments. Um, There was this quote that someone gave me that I thought um, was helpful for me as I'm working through this passage, right? As we're collectively working through this passage. Oh, side note, sorry, Um, my mind's a little wonky. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. You can turn to page 886. Um, If you don't own a Bible, you can um, take that Bible. That is yours. Um, Someone shared this quote with me. It's by C.S. Lewis. I think this is helpful to help us understand um, truly the, the grand scheme of the gospel message and what John is actually talking about here in this, in this passage that we, we see already, but that we'll hone in on verse 14. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I believe in, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he's a famous author. He, he's passed away a long time ago. Um, um, and he, he's a fantastic writer. And, and he says this quote that I think um, is actually beneficial for us. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I think um, that is an accurate depiction of what Christianity does, but but the focus and the attention and the, the centerpiece of Christianity is Jesus Christ, of what he does. Hence why we have this theme, Jesus is the light, because what essentially C.S. Lewis is saying is that because of Jesus, through Jesus, not only do we see him, not only do we, we, we know him, but, but he allows us, he gives us perspective to see the world around us, right? Because of Jesus, like, we can see the world clearly for what it is, a sinful, broken, fallen world, right? So 
So our hope doesn't end up being in the things of this world, this created order of the world, or the people of this world. Like our hope, our trust ends up being in Jesus because he's provided the perspective. I think about um, this illustration. It didn't go over well in the first service because they didn't know what it was, and it scared me. So about for 10 seconds, I panicked because I was like, oh, I want them to understand this idea. How many of you have watched the TV show, The Walking Dead, or know about the TV show, The Walking Dead? Raise your hand. Okay, good, because I told them at the nine o'clock, I was like, I think they'll get it at the 1040 service. Um, um, this idea that John is drawing us to, drawing us to um, is this idea, right, that, that Jesus is the word who pre-existed before the, the creation of the universe, and Jesus is this light, right, that he comes into darkness and exposes the truth of our world. And, and, I, and, I, and I think the illustration is like The Walking Dead, right? If you haven't seen it, it's a TV show um, about zombies, right? Like, most people are zombies, they're dead. And there's a small group of people that are living on this earth, it's a post-apocalyptic world, and they're trying to survive because they don't want to become zombies. The zombies are not aware that they're zombies. But the people are aware that they're zombies. The people are self-aware that they live in this world. Like, it's like the Matrix. How many of you watched the Matrix, right? If you haven't watched it before, it's basically like, it's this, is it a post-apocalyptic? Yeah, post-apocalyptic world. Everyone's plugged into this grid, this system, right? And, and, and basically there's a small group of people that live outside of this existing world, this, this matrix, and then some of them are able to go into the matrix. And, and the idea is that the people who live in the matrix are not aware of the matrix, even though they're, they're like glitches in the system. Um, they're not aware of it. The only people that are aware of it are the people who've taken the red pill. You gotta take a red or a blue pill. The blue pill puts you back into to sleep and then the red pill is like, is the red pill, right? Is it the red pill? Yes, okay, yeah, yeah, the red pill. Yes, you take the red pill and then you're like, you're made aware of that you're living in the matrix and you can be unplugged and then you, you see the world for what it really is. That's the same thing that, that John is talking about, I highly doubt John was thinking about the Matrix or The Walking Dead. But essentially what John is saying is, right, in this section, that, that the world is in darkness. The people are in darkness. They're not aware. They have no clue. And how are they made aware? How, how can they see if they're blind? How, how can they know if they don't understand? How, how are they able to navigate this world if... if if there isn't someone to provide the light, so John says, Jesus is the light. Amen. So look what he says in verse 14, more than just Jesus is the light, right? Like just not something that you see. Look what John says the light is. Look at John, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you like to circle, highlight, I would underline the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
Verse 15, John bore witness about him. This is John the Baptist he's now talking about, not the person who's writing this gospel. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Just a couple of things that we observe here. Particularly, John goes back to this, to this idea, this title, the word. So he starts off in the first couple of verses talking about the word, right? The word was with God, the word was God, and everything was made through the word. And he's talking about Jesus Christ. Um, and then he talks about um, the light, and then he, talks, uh, he makes like a segue into talking about John the Baptist who, who bore witness of this light, who bore witness of Jesus Christ. And then he goes back to the word. And, and what does he say about the word? He, he says that the word became flesh. He, he doesn't use uh, the word body. Um, he doesn't use the word um, human. He, he uses flesh. Why? Why do you think he uses the word flesh? He could have picked a different word. He could easily put, he took on a body. He, he took on Human body. He could have used so many other ideas, but he says the word became flesh. I, th I think what John is talking about is this. And, and understand this. That God the creator who created the universe through Jesus Christ is God who draws near, comes down, to take on the human experience, to take on this, the material body, right? Jesus had to go to sleep. He was tired, he was hungry. He was born in a manger, he had to grow up as a child, he, he became a teenager, he became a man, right? Like, he had to walk. He had to talk. He, he had to experience everything that you and I experience. And the reason why we know why he experienced the, what we experience is what uh, Hebrews says, right? So that, so that he knows us well, so that he can intercede on our behalf, that he knows what we're thinking and feeling. He knows the temptations that we've experienced because he himself has witnessed with his own eyes the, the human experience. The only difference is he didn't sin. So, so God becomes flesh? What, what other religion or belief system has their deity or their person that they worship take on human flesh? Like, think about that idea that God sends his son on this earth to be like you and me. 
I'm marveled at that that idea because he doesn't have to do that, right? Like he could have easily in some form or fashion like not do that, but but he chose to do that. He decided to do that because, because not only of his great love, not only of his love for you and me, but, but his faithfulness to his character of, of being gracious and kind and truthful, right? Like, like he takes on flesh so that we can identify with him in ways that are helpful for us and our hearts and our minds, that, that, that he takes on the very image, the perfect image. Think about it. He takes on flesh, but it's a perfect image of God. It's a perfect image of who he is, and he takes on the flesh so that he can identify with us when he doesn't have to. And what John says, he dwells among us. He dwells among us. This is not a God who's far off in the distance. This is not a God who is just in his house somewhere and he said, I, I've created the universe. Now you're on your own. You'll figure it out. No, 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 no. This is the God that says, no, no, I'm going to draw near to my people. I, I'm going to step into the, wh- who does that? What other religion has that? That God himself draws near to the very people he created. The sinful people that we are. The people that he made perfect and holy. And the people who were rebellious and sinful. Who drew away from God and said, I don't want anything to do with you. Right? Like That's what Adam and Eve did. He, he drew away from us. This is the idea of imminence that I talked about last week. That God wants to be near us. And this is just not the first time that God wants to be near us. In fact, we've seen this before. Notice in Genesis chapter 1, actually chapter 1 through 3, what does God do when he creates the universe? He, he speaks the universe into existence, right? This is a response time, right? This is a classroom. We say yes, yeah. The, an- the questions are easy and the answer is easy. Um, like, He creates the universe with his spoken word, right? Does he create the entire universe and everything in the universe with his created word? Ah, gotcha. There's one exception. He creates the entire universe with the power of his word until he gets to man and he says, let us make man in our image. But he doesn't speak us into existence. What does the Bible say? He formed us. He formed us. He wasn't distant. He drew near. So he formed us out of the dirt. And what does he do after? He, he, he creates Eve out of who? Adam. Formed her out of his rib. Like, think about that picture in that image that that God is near to the people who bear his image. Everything else in the universe was a creative spoken word that he didn't have to form, but the people that bear his image, the people that he breathed life into, right? That's what the Bible says, that he actually breathed the breath of life into who? Into Adam's nostrils. He was close and near. When Adam sinned, 
and was hiding because he was naked, who was walking in the garden looking for him? Yes, it was God. Who spoke to Abraham and visited Abraham? Who, who spoke to Moses? Who called, who called Moses, right? Like burning bush. God always draws near to his people. Christmas Eve, I got an idea, a good idea about this idea. That this last couple of weeks, the Lord has been like tugging this idea that God is with, God is imminent. He draws near to us. And oftentimes we can feel lonely and hurt in a broken world and we can feel isolated from God because we look at the sinful patterns of our own lives and we look at what sin has caused us and we can often think that God is distant, but no, God has always been near. And what John says, he dwelt among us. He makes an interesting point here. Look at it with me again. Verse 14 and the word became flesh, dwelt among us. Okay, we can get that, right? We can easily say, all right, he dwelt with us. That means that Jesus came down, he lived, he breathed the air we breathed, like he was present, he had a body, he had eyes, we saw him, and when he's talking about we, he's possibly talking about the disciples and the crowds and Judas and, and the people who rejected him, all the people who witnessed him. Yeah, we can easily say that, but then, then he says, and, and, and we have seen his glory, Glory as the only son from God the Father, full of grace and truth. Makes me think. How, how can we see God's glory? How is that even possible? Like, why would John use this idea that we have seen his glory? Do me a favor. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Oh, excuse me, 33. I'm sorry. I'm looking at 34. Exodus 33. We're going to do a little rabbit trail here. It's fine. We're good. We got time. Exodus 33. Page 73, 74. We'll end up on page 74, but you can look at uh, 73. Here. Quick idea. This is what's going on. God has rescued his people out of Egypt, right? Come on, we got, we got, we got, this is 11 o'clock. We got to wake up. God rescued his people out of Egypt, right? Okay, they find themselves in the wilderness, right? Um, Moses is going to go to the mountain. He, God wants to talk to him, and he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. What do the people do? They decide, in their infinite wisdom, right, um, to build a golden calf, to worship something other than God. And God's like, I'm done. I had it. You guys are stiff-necked people. I want nothing to do with you. You, you guys are done. I, I can't anymore. I'm, I'm over it. It's, it's done. So Moses goes back to the mountain and is like, uh, these are your people. You rescued them. Not me. You got to do something. And he's like, no, no, no. You guys will go. I, I'm going to let you go into the land. You're going to go to the land of milk and honey. You're going to go to the land of Canaan. In fact, um, 
Here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go with you. I promise that I'm going to go with you. I promise that I'm going to be with you. But, but you know what? Because of your sin, because this is getting out of hand, you guys are acting up. I, I'm not going. I'm going to send an angel. The angel's going to go, and he's going to defeat your enemies, and you'll be able to go. And then Moses is like, uh-uh. We ain't doing that. You ain't going. We're not going. That's my translation, of course. Come again? Yeah, no. If you ain't going, if you're not going before us, we're not going. You took us out. You delivered us. You made these promises. We want to go with you. And this is, and this is what God's response to, to Moses. Look at verse 17. Actually, let's go to 15. This is, this is what Moses uh, said. It, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He's like, huh, you have to go with us. How are they going to know? The nation's going to know who we are. Like he's talking about like what makes us different, what makes us unique in the entire um, world is that we serve a God who's with us, who draws near to us, who leads us, who guides us, right? Like you're the God who we're following. That's what the rest of the world sees. Remember, God's like, no, I ain't going. So this is the Lord's response. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this is a, like, where people often think that God isn't compassionate and God isn't loving and that somehow, like, God is this vicious, angry, harsh God. Like, we see a glimpse of God's compassion in ways that the world can't testify to, right? Like, God says, no, I'm not going to do it. Moses says, no, we ain't going unless you go. And then this is God's response to Moses. It's like, this is an answered prayer. God says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God says, all right, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with you. And then Moses asks this really weird question. It's interesting that he, that he asks this question. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. What? What do you mean, show me, like, your glory? What? Why does Moses want to see God's glory? Here's the theological reason. This is what happens. Um, man has, the people of God have broken covenant with God. God is like, I, I'm not going to do this. And oftentimes when God um, made a covenant with his people or with a person in the Old Testament, there was a sign. There was something that God initiated. Remember when he made a covenant with Abraham, what did he do? He took the animals, broke them apart, and walked through it. And that was a sign to Abraham that God was going to be faithful to his covenant. So what Moses is asking in that verse to see his glory is not necessarily out of curiosity, right? Because think about it. In some sense, Moses has already seen God's glory. Because if you read the, the beginning part of Exodus 33, how does God appear to Moses? 
In fact, what we see is in, in among the people of, of Israel in the wilderness, there was the tent of meeting. And in the tent of meeting, there was the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, it was God's presence. So every time Moses wanted to talk to God, every time um, God wanted to talk to Moses, Moses had to go into the tent of meeting. And he would often go either with Joshua or with, with Aaron. And, and then he would go in. And, and what Exodus 33 says, that when he would go in, a cloud would descend down and Moses would walk through the cloud and he would talk to God. Also, too, we know Moses has heard God's voice. He's heard him through a burning bush, a pillar of fire. Like, he's experienced God's great power and all. So why does Moses want to see God's glory? Well, for one reason he wants to see it, not of curiosity. What he wants is he's putting God not to the test, but he's like, I want it in paper. You said you, you, said you weren't going to go. Now you're saying you're going to go. We're happy that, you, that you're going to go, but we need it in writing. That, that's how they did it back then, and it wasn't a bad thing. So, so the Lord says, this is his response. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. What? How, how is Moses supposed to see goodness? Because goodness is not an object to be seen. It's not like... You can set your eyes on goodness and like with your eyes gaze upon it and as it moves, you can see it. That, that doesn't make sense and that's not what, that's not what um, Moses is asking. Moses is asking, I want to see your glory. He says, I would make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. What's the Lord's name? He says it, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I am, will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Look at verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You cannot see my face. So what does God do? God says, I'm going to show you a glimpse. I'm going to hide you in the, in, in the rock. I'm going to pass by. I'm going to protect you, and then you're going to see the backside of my glory just for a moment. But, but Moses wanted to see God's face. He, he wanted to see his face. Now, what does this have to do with John? What does this have to do with John 1, 14, that says that we have seen his glory the glory as of the only Son from God the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Here's the point. God has always intended to be near his people. God always intended for his people to see him clearly, to see his glory to see him face to face. And I think what John is doing is he's pointing us back to the story in Exodus. And in a small glimpse, in a small moment, we actually see God answer Moses' petition. Because what John is saying is that, that, that what Moses couldn't see, 
we now see. What Moses couldn't see then is now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the perfect image of the Father. That's why John says, if you, if you, John repeats what Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So, so what John is pointing to in this passage, what Exodus 33 is reminding us is, because sin has separated us from God, God invested in us, right? Invested in us, Jesus Christ, meaning that God sends his son so that you and I can fully see who he is. That what couldn't be seen before is now realized in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Like, these are the hints in the Old Testament that, that we see God doing. Like, where Moses could not see God's glory, we see God's glory. And what is God's glory? It's, it's, it's his character. It's his essence. It's, it's his nature. And, and all that is seen in Jesus Christ. That's why he says we see it fully, what? Through grace and truth. Through grace and truth, right? So to see it, it's to see God's grace. It's to see the truth of who he is, the essence of who he is, all that he is, and everything that God is, the triune God, is seen in Jesus Christ. I love what this person writes. This is a commentator on this passage. He says the true glory is to be seen not in outward splendor, but in the lowliness in which the Son of God lived among us and suffered for us. So, so what do we see? When John is talking about the grace and truth, what do we see? We see the lowliness of Jesus Christ. Beyond the miracles, beyond the power, beyond the splendor, beyond the creative ability to speak the world into existence, what we truly see, what, what we really see, the glory of God in Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. Beyond the miracles. And that's what John is saying when we see what we see. Now we might think that, no, John's talking about the people who lived back then, but no, we are the ones who see. Think about it. When, when the people in the Old Testament are, are looking towards the Messiah, they're looking forward. They're, 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 they're having a faith looking forward that God is going to fulfill his promises. And, and the people of the New Testament, like they're looking at Jesus and they're looking at his miracles and they're looking at his power. They're looking at the vindication on the cross. And they're saying, that is God's glory. But you and I see the fulfillment of all that. We see it from the Old Testament and the New. So, so our faith and our trust in Jesus is looking back at what he did from the very beginning. Not just the New Testament, but from the beginning of time. So the splendor and the majesty and the power and the glory, all the, thing that we, all the things that we could imagine is actually seen in Jesus Christ, but more specifically is seen in which he suffered and in which he died, in which he was brutally killed on the cross. And in a deeper sense, it is the shame of carrying the cross. That, that's the glory that you and I see. I want to read you this passage. 
Exodus 34. You can look at it or you can just listen to me. And then we'll close. Exodus 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us from our inheritance. That small little passage is finally revealed in John chapter 1 where the word becomes flesh and everything after that, God fulfills that promise to forgive the iniquities of sin. That's how Jesus is the light. That, that's, that's why we're here proclaiming the name of Jesus is because he's given us the ability He's given us the perspective to understand and know that he's the one that has forgiven our sin, that, that, that he's made us aware of our sin and our need for him, and that our identity is not founded in ourself. It's not found in who we think we are or who we want to be. It's not found in what culture says we have to be or what culture says we need to believe in. Like Our identity, our value and worth is found in, in the exposure of who Jesus is in the gospel and the fulfillment of the promises from the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That is why we proclaim Jesus is the light, where we can say that, that we have the light and the light has exposed me. It has exposed my heart, my mind, my intentions, and I place my faith in Jesus, not because I can save myself, but because he saved me. He's been faithful to me in a world that's dark. And let me tell you something, like I said last week, our world is dark and it's crazy. It believes things that don't make sense. Exchanging the truth for a lie, making up stuff. How are they to know? They can only know through the light. They can only know by seeing the glory and the glory is Jesus Christ. So. What's the proper application for us? What, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that to have a, a heart of gratitude and a heart of repentance, knowing that, that God has done this for us, that he's been faithful to his promises, and that there's nothing that you and I have to do to, to receive it other than to believe, to put our faith in him. And, and to, to see the world the way he sees it is, is to fully trust and know that he has it in control and that, and that everything that happens in our world falls through his hands. And when we experience darkness in our own life, we are reminded that he's the one not only in control, but the one who, who provides the things that we need to get through it because he's the God who's drawn near. Let's pray. God, help us to believe your word this morning. Help us to be reminded, God, that we have seen your glory. 
we have seen your son Jesus, not only in history, but through the gospel, through the proclamation of your word. Lord, as we celebrate the Christmas season, Lord, that we would be reminded that it's all about you. It's not about us. It's about what you have done, what you continue to do. God, would you just use this year and this time as we celebrate the birth of your son to keep us tethered, to keep us anchored in the hope of your son, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name and people and the people of God say, This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.